John chapter 8. I'm going to read starting in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We're the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen in my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Let's just stop and pray. Lord, help us to hear the words of God today. Help us to hear your word in this scripture as we work our way through this, Lord. Help us to hear and understand. Give us ears to hear. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Lineage is still very important to us. Most of us, anyway. um, We care about what our family name is, generally speaking. This is one of the reasons why um, sometimes we put our names on buildings. You drive by a farm and the farmer's name will be on the side of the building or maybe on a sign out front. You can assume certain things when you see that about that farm, especially if it's an old barn. You can assume that that farm has been there probably in that family maybe for generations. Recently, I've been kind of slowly, very slowly, reading a book that you will probably find fascinating. (laughs) The name of it is Revivalism and Separatism in New England, 1740 to 1800, Strict Congregationalists and Separate Baptists in the Great Awakening. It's it's page turner. (laughs) It's basically a history of Christianity in New England in that time period, late 1700s, mid to late 1700s. But coming out of the Great Awakening, which really uh, transformed our nation, Coming out of the Great Great Awakening, there's a famous story of two family names. 
really, of two fathers. In 1900, the year 1900, a pastor named A.E. Winship, he traced the descendants of one of America's most uh, well-known preachers and theologians, a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. It really was in large part due to Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, that the Great Awakening happened, that God, God used them to make this happen. Edwards was born in Connecticut in the year 1703. He entered Yale, Yale University, at the age of 13, and he later went on to become the president of what was known then as the College of New Jersey, but it's now known as Princeton. He and his wife Sarah had 11 children, and Edwards was well-known um, for always wanting to spend time with them, being a good father. But during that same time period in the early 1700s, there was another man who lived in New York, not far away from Connecticut, and his name was Max Jukes. The contrast between these two fathers, between Jonathan Edwards and Max Jukes, these these two family lines really couldn't be any more uh, striking. And so a researcher charted and compared the two family trees. Just listen to this. Jonathan Edwards' descendants included a U.S. vice president. His name was Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr was his grandson, and he shot and killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel. But that notwithstanding, his family also included three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors of major U.S. cities, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 65 professors, 80 public office holders, uh, 100 lawyers, 62 physicians, 75 army or navy officers, 100 clergymen, missionaries, or theological professors. There were practically no known, at least, lawbreakers in his line, except for Aaron Burr, but he was vice president, and he never stood trial. On the other hand, Max Jukes, his descendants included seven murderers, 60 thieves, 128 prostitutes, 140 other convicts of various crimes, 280 street beggars, and 440 who uh, were physically wrecked by their addiction to alcohol. Out of the 1,200 Jukes descendants that were studied, 300 died prematurely. It's estimated, one article that I was reading, it's estimated that that the Jukes descendants, Max Jukes descendants, cost the state of New York approximately $1,308,000, and this is before the modern welfare system was created. One journal in an article comparing these two family lines, the Edwards line and the Jukes line, said this, the most universal traits of the Jukes were idleness, ignorance, and vulgarity. These characteristics led to disease and disgrace, to pauperism and crime. Lineage is important to us, yet we know, and many of us sit here even this morning as examples of a lineage, of a family line that has been changed, not necessarily by college, Not by military service, not by working hard, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, but our our family line has been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many of us were very possibly, many of us even in here this morning, were very possibly destined, so to speak, for the same fate as the Jukes family, 
We were idle and ignorant and vulgar. We were headed for disease and disgrace, for pauperism and crime. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ because by grace we've been saved. And so as a result, if you have been saved by God's grace, you also have a new father. And so in today's passage, Jesus very clearly says that there are really just two fathers. The roots of the family tree eventually stop at at one or two possible names, and he's going to tell these people, these Jewish leaders, that one of those names is not really Abraham. I want to clarify who he is talking to explicitly in this section of Scripture. So look at just verses 30 and 31. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Throughout John's gospel... John always refers to the, to the Pharisees. He always refers to the Jewish leadership as the Jews. He's not talking about the whole uh, broad scope of Jewish ethnic people who happen to be there in Jerusalem. He's specifically talking about the Jewish leadership here. And so when Jesus turns there in verse 31 to the Jews who had believed in him, he's talking, for example, to men like Nicodemus, who had said to him back in chapter 3, verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And when things get heated in their, in their response in, in verse 33 and then, and then later on, it's pretty clear that he's not talking to true disciples, no matter what their ethnicity might be. He's not talking to true disciples. He's talking to those who believe, maybe at this point, maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the one who's come to deliver us from the Romans, but he is certainly not the one who has come to deliver us from our sins, because we don't need delivering from that. And so maybe he's a Messiah, but he's certainly not the Messiah. Throughout this conversation, Jesus has made at least three provocative statements, uh, probably even more than that, but I want to point out the three that I'm thinking of. Three provocative statements. The first is verse 24. He says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Think about him saying those words. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Remember, he's standing in the courtyard of the temple. Then he says in verses 31 and 32, he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This was provocative for them. It provoked them. And then in verse 34, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And these Jews, even those who had believed that he just might be some kind of Messiah, they believed that they had maintained a privileged status, the Jews did. They they believed that they had maintained this privileged status because of their heritage, because they were were physical descendants or, or physical offspring of Abraham. But Jesus lays out for them in 
Clearly, he lays out the the conditions that are necessary for them to be considered righteous in God's eyes. He tells them that unless you believe that I am he, that is, unless you believe that he is the son of man who will be lifted up, unless they believe that, they will die in their sins because they're slaves to sin. They need to believe that he is the savior in order to be considered righteous in God's eyes. But they're not concerned with righteousness. These people standing there before him are not concerned with righteousness. We can clearly see that in the way that they argue with him. They're concerned with their ethnic status. They're concerned with their religious status, not with their standing before a holy judge. Because they're more concerned with their status as Jews, as God's chosen people, as descendants of Abraham, because they're more concerned with that, they have offered up the counter-argument that as the offspring of Abraham, we're not slaves to anyone. We're not slaves to anyone. But as we saw last week, even Ishmael, who was a descendant of Abraham, was his son. Even Ishmael, he and his mother Hagar were cast out of the house as slaves because he was not of the promised seed of Abraham. Romans chapter 9 verse 8 says this, that is, it is not the children of the flesh Who are the children of God? But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Think about that. It's not the children of the flesh that are the children of God. It's the children of the promise that are counted as offspring. Galatians 3, 29 says, And if you are Christ's, think very carefully, if you are Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And because these people here in John chapter 8, they don't believe in him, at least the ones arguing with him, because they don't believe in him, they're still slaves to sin, because sonship only comes through belief in Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus Christ that we are given the right to be called children of God. And so the argument that Jesus is making at this point is regarding the nature of, we could say, true discipleship. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. At the root of true discipleship is the nature of a person's true identity. And this is where we need to start, by establishing the true identity. So establishing true identity. Look at verses 37 and 38. We're going to begin in 37 and work our way through 47 this morning. But verse 37 says, I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So we're picking this up kind of in the middle of an argument, uh, the middle of Jesus' statement. But he's responding still to their statement in verse 33, we're the offspring of Abraham, we've never been enslaved to anyone, how is it that you say you will become free? So he's still responding to that statement. And he's already clarified for them, even in verse 36, the true definition of freedom. We looked at that last week. And so now he needs to to redefine their notion of, of what it means to be the offspring of Abraham. And so he acknowledges that he knows that they are the the physical descendants of Abraham. I know that. But even in the Old Testament, 
even in their scripture that they had, that they knew, that they were the experts in, even in the Old Testament, to be a physical descendant of Abraham was not enough. Of course, the plight of Ishmael proved that. But for that matter, so did the plight of Esau, Abraham's grandson. We've been talking about this in Sunday school over the last year, year and a half, something like that. But the Apostle Paul brings it into the New Testament when he writes this in Romans 9, verses 6 to 8. I already read part of this, but let me read a little bit more of that passage. He says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring, but, quote, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Paul says, This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Children of the promise. Our God is a covenant-keeping, a promise-keeping God. He had promised Abraham a son, but not just any son, a son who would crush the head of the serpent. He'd even made that promise specifically to Eve a son that God's people had been waiting for from the very beginning, a son through whom we have been given the right to be called children of God. John will say in chapter 1, a son who's not ashamed, Hebrews tells us, to call us brothers. Later, John is going to elaborate on the fact that for For someone to rightly be called a child of God, he or she must pass three tests. They must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he writes this in in 1 John 3, verse 10. He says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The three tests of whether or not we are the children of God, we must confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. We must believe in His name. Then it says that we must practice righteousness. That means obey. We must obey His commands. We must submit to Him. We need to love one another. Love His brother, He says. And so far, these Jews, these men standing in front of Him, they've failed all three tests. They do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They are not practicing righteousness. In fact, they're practicing self-righteousness. And they don't love their brother here. In fact, they're trying to kill him. But it gets worse. This is why not only do they not love him, they're actually trying to kill him. But Jesus Jesus even will tell them why they want to kill him. It's because they they are willingly abandoning his teaching. They're willingly abandoning his word. My word finds no place in you, he says. This could be interpreted a couple of different ways. I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, he says in 37, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Either way that we interpret this is really bad for the Pharisees. He could be saying it like this. He might mean, you have no room for my word. You have no room for my word. And remember, the the Pharisees are, are strict uh, adherence to the law. They, they, they strictly hold to the law of Moses. 
So they are rejecting his covenant of of grace in order to remain under the old covenant of the law. They have no room for the grace of God whatsoever. They have no room for anything Jesus is saying. Or he could be saying, really connected here, really similar. He could be saying, my word does not operate in you. My word does not operate in you, which means that they're not acting as the people of God ought to act. They ought to be acting in obedience to his commands and and worshiping him from a pure heart. But they're not doing that. His word finds no place in them. Either way, for Jesus, there is no middle ground. For Jesus, this is a matter of, of of life or death. Righteousness or unrighteousness, redeemed or condemned, son of God or son of a devil, either you worship him as Lord or you want to kill him, he says. And in order to establish the nature of their true identity, he contrasts these two fathers. He first mentions it in verse 38. He says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. He's saying to them, I'm telling you what my father has said. Now, he's already said something like this several times already. He's already said throughout John's gospel, I'm telling you, what I'm telling you is from the father. What I'm telling you is from the father. In verse 28, I speak as the father taught me. He's telling them that he is perfectly submitted to God's will. This is is Christ's perfect obedience. I'm just telling you what God says. But what he's really doing here is offering this really sharp contrast. They both are operating, both Jesus and the Jews, are operating under the authority of a father. But they're two different fathers. So think about this for a moment. Even with the example of Jonathan Edwards and Max Jukes, or even in your own experience, the the nature and character of the son reveal the nature and character of the father. Is that true? Generally speaking, it is. The nature and character of the son reveal the nature and character of the son's father. Now, humanly speaking, of course, we know that there are always exceptions to that rule, and we thank God that there are always exceptions to that rule. But this, one, this is one of the reasons, for example, one of the reasons why both qualifications for both an elder and a deacon in the church is that their, their children must be managed well, Paul will write. In fact, in um, 1 Timothy 3.5, it says, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The nature and character of the son reveal the nature and character of the father. That's what Jesus is saying here. And he's forcing the Jews to identify their father. He's saying, tell me again who your father really is which of course they do. And then he moves on to establish their true fatherhood. Verse 39, this is where he establishes their true fatherhood. Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. And so they begin there in verse 39, Abraham is our father. I've already said this, and we're still talking in spiritual terms here. So when, what they really are doing here is they're doubling down. They're still talking in spiritual terms. They're saying Abraham is the patriarch. 
This is beyond dispute. We are not slaves to sin. We are righteous. We have been redeemed. We have been set free because we are God's chosen people, because Abraham is our father. But Jesus points out, as the passage continues, if you were Abraham's children, middle of verse 39, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. There are some major differences between Abraham and these Jews. And if the nature and character of the son reveals the nature and character of the father, then they have some explaining to do. They they need to grapple with this. And the first thing that they need to explain that we can see here, the difference between Abraham and and these Pharisees, is their attitude towards Jesus. Look at what he says again. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. What works did Abraham do? What is he talking about? Well, let's just put it simply, not trying to kill Jesus, for starters. Abraham did not try to kill Jesus. Well, what in the world is he talking about? Because Abraham lived 2,000 years or so before Jesus walked the earth. So what does this mean? Let's connect a couple of dots. We believe that Jesus is God. He has said this clearly right in the very first couple of verses of this book, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. We believe that Jesus is God, and he's already claimed this throughout his talking as well, not only John, but Jesus too. And so we can conclude that Jesus was well acquainted with Abraham, because God was well acquainted with Abraham. And back in in Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 to 21, in fact, just turn back there. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham is visited by three angels, or three messengers, really. Um, These messengers, sometimes it is translated angels, sometimes messengers, they were on their way to deliver God's judgment in Sodom and Gomorrah. But one of these three... One of these three men, as the first verse says, was different from the other two. I'm not going to read again. I'm not going to read this whole chapter, but I want to point out a few verses, starting with the first three verses. So Genesis 18, 1 to 3 says this, And the Lord appeared to him, that is Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Jump down to just verse 10. The Lord said, verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, verse 17, the Lord said, verse 19, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Verse 20, the Lord said, 
the end of verse 21, according to the outcry that has come to me. This is the Lord speaking throughout this passage. And as Christians, we actually believe that this, this one who is called man in the first verse, that this is actually Jesus. How did Abraham act when he, was, when he was met by these three, one of which was the Lord who spoke to him? He received him with reverence and love and he bowed down to the ground and worshipped him, those first three verses say. He worshipped him. A distinguishing characteristic of a true descendant of Abraham, of a true disciple, is that they worship and love and receive God's Son, Jesus Christ. These things go hand in hand. John even said all the way back in chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Just as Abraham received this, the Lord who speaks to him. These Pharisees were not receiving him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This was a major difference between Abraham and those who were claiming to be his offspring. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's John one eleven. But then secondly... The other difference that they had with Abraham was their attitude towards God's, God's word. This one's a little bit easier to quantify. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6 tells us. It also says that many times in the New Testament. These men, on the other hand, did not believe Jesus. His teaching went nowhere with them. His word was, had, no, had found no place in them, he says. Even those who believed, verse 30, if they didn't abide in his word, then they were not true disciples. And, and, and look at how they're responding to him. They're seeking to kill him, he says. You're looking for ways to kill him. So to put it kind of graphically, and you may have to do a little research on this, but they are not, so this is a little bit of homework on your part, but think through this. They are not receiving Jesus the way Abraham received him in chapter 18, Genesis 18. Instead, they're receiving Jesus much like the men of Sodom received him in Genesis 19. A fact I don't think is actually lost on them because of what they say in verse 41. How could they claim spiritual lineage from Abraham when they look so unlike him? How could they claim to be the sons, the offspring of Abraham when they look so unlike Abraham looks, when they act so unlike Abraham acts? How can we claim to be children of the promise when our faith looks so unlike his faith, when we look so unlike Abraham who believed God? And it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham heard the truth from God and he believed. They hear the truth from the Son of God and they seek to kill him. And yet while they are faithless, 
They are certainly not fatherless. Jesus said to them, this is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. You're doing the works your father did. Now things are getting heated now when he says this. Um, He's outright accused them of being killers, uh, of being premeditated murderers. But before we go there, look at their defensiveness there. I mentioned it, but look at verse 41. You're doing the works of your father. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. I believe that they heard his accusation of being like the men of Sodom loud and clear. And so now they're trying to flip this back on Jesus. And in reality, what they are really doing is they are sending out three messages with this statement. When they said, we were not born of sexual immorality, we have one father, even God. The first thing that they're trying to send, the first message that they're trying to get across, if we take this at face value, they are claiming their own purity. Jesus has been saying, he's been saying all through this passage, and really for the last several chapters, he's either been saying the Father or my Father to refer to God as he's been talking all through this. And they are claiming to be the children of God as well. They're claiming that they have just as much a right to call God Father as Jesus has. We're, we're, not, we're not the product of sexual immorality. God is our Father. But I think there's something even more sinister going on here as well. I believe they're also passive-aggressively accusing Jesus of being born as a result of sexual immorality. This is their way of explaining the virgin birth. Well, we were not born out of sexual immorality. Somebody here was, but it wasn't us. Everyone's heard the rumors. Everybody knew who Jesus was. They'd heard about Mary. They'd heard about Joseph. They knew his family. They knew that they were not married. They knew that they had gone off to Bethlehem together. Everybody knew this. And they're saying, well, we weren't the ones born in sexual immorality. They're trying to deflect what he's accusing them of. What do you mean, who's our father? Who's your father? This is the old, I know you are, but what am I argument that they're laying out here? So they're claiming their own purity. They're claiming Jesus' impurity. And then the, the, the third message that they send here is more subtle, but it's there nonetheless. Down in verse 48, they're going to bring up the fact, they're going to bring up the Samaritans. And the Samaritans were in fact, especially in the Jewish mind, the Samaritans were actually the result of sexual immorality. They were half Jewish and therefore not true sons. They're saying no one around here is as pure as we are. Not Jesus, not the Samaritans, it goes without saying, not the Gentiles. No one around here is as pure as we are. No one around here is more of a right to claim to be the sons of God than we do. We have one Father, even God. But Jesus is not persuaded by their argument. Verse 42 Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I, come from, uh, I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. Their actions prove different than their claims or even their lineage as, as Abraham's physical offspring. In fact, they can't even bear to hear Jesus' words. Stop talking is what they're saying to him. Jesus understands this. Listen to what 
This is what the prophet Jeremiah had to say. Jeremiah 6.10, we read this. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. That's these people. This prophecy is fulfilled in their presence today. Paul explains what's happening in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, when he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to discern them because they are spiritually discerned. Spiritually speaking, these grown men standing there are standing there with their, with their hands over their ears, yelling, I can't hear you. I'm not listening to you. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. They're hearing the word of the Lord. And they're standing there with their hands over their ears, going, la, 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 la. And in verse 44, Jesus again kind of ups the ante by offering proof of their sonship. This is proof of their sonship. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Jesus now says outright what he's been implying all along. These people, these slaves to sin who do not abide in his word because they can't bear it. They find their origin and their identity in the person and work of the devil. That's what he's telling them. This is not only a guilty verdict. To go back to the courtroom kind of metaphor here. This is not only a guilty verdict by this just and upright judge. This is a declaration of pure evil. You are the sons of your father, the devil. Their will is to do the devil's desires. They want to accomplish the devil's purposes. And in fact, his goal, he says, is death. It's murder. He will go on to say in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And as his offspring, this is their goal as well, to steal and kill and destroy, even to kill Jesus, the light of life, who came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. That's the rest of John 10, 10. The nature and character of the son reveal the nature and character of the father, and their father is the devil whose goal is death and whose method is lying. In fact, he's a, he's a lying liar. He's the father of lies who's been lying from the beginning when he said to Eve in the garden, you will not surely die. You will not surely die. But God had said this. God had said to Adam in the garden, you may surely eat of any, every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Somebody's lying. 
Either the creator was lying or the destroyer, the father of lies, was lying. And Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18 tells us emphatically, it is impossible for God to lie. So my bet is on the father of lies being the liar. The tragedy of liars and children of liars is that they cannot hold to the truth. Again, verse 45 Because I tell the truth, because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Not when I tell the truth, because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Because the children of God so love the truth that they believe Jesus. They're set free by Jesus. They're no longer slaves to sin, but are are sons who will remain in the Father's house forever. He's just said that. This is why the children of the devil, they're so characterized by lies that they cannot hold the truth precisely because it is the truth. This is why so many people, and I know that you've been frustrated by this as you have shared the gospel with your friends and your family. This is why so many people can can rationally listen to the gospel. They can even accept its truthfulness. Even the most outrageous claims of the gospel that a man 2,000 years ago took the penalty for my sin on the cross that God sent him to take away my sin. Even the most outrageous claims of the gospel that he rose from the dead, that he ascended to heaven. They can hear those things and even accept them as being, being true. They can accept the the helpfulness of the gospel. And they can still end up rejecting Christ. Precisely because in the end they really are the children of the devil. People don't like to hear this. This is sometimes sometimes why people leave churches. But in the end you're either a child of God or a child of the devil. There are no gray areas. This brings us to the final point this morning. Jesus' penetrating question there. Why don't you believe me? Why don't you believe me? Verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? He's saying, what am I guilty of that you are to put me to death? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Why do you not believe me? Jesus answers his own question. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them is that you're not of God. There's really only one application, I think, for our hearts today as we think about this. John chapter 1, I read this before, but I want to read it again. Verses 11 to 13. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of the blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. He gave the right to become children of God who were born of God. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 
And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever's been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The application today for those of us who have believed in Him is to behold our God. Behold your God, your Father. And answer this question. Why do you not believe me? If you do, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Let's pray. Lord Jesus says hard words. It is my prayer today, Lord, that if there are any here who are not born of God, have not repented and trusted in Christ for salvation, have not believed in Him, that they would run from their sin and run to Christ for life, for freedom. He had said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to believe, to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who came to take away our sin. Adopt us as his, into your family and is not ashamed to call us brothers. Lord, as we stand here today, we behold our God who is seated on his throne. Lord, we thank you for all that you have done in sending Jesus. We thank you for all that you have done in redeeming us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.